0: Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. Right. All
1: right. Is it legal to? A regular look at the legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty.
2: And I'm Farah Fight.
1: Now, Farah and I are hyphenated Americans. I'm Scots, Irish, German, French, English, American. And I'm married to a Swedish American, Farah.
2: And I'm a Welsh American, and my mother was actually an immigrant.
1: The point is, we're descended from immigrants, some whom arrived hundreds of years ago, but many of you might be of more recent immigration vintage. And so we're going to be talking about immigration today and families coming to this country.
2: Exactly. Many of us know recent immigrants or are even related to recent immigrants. And immigration has become a major issue in our country. But we're not the only country dealing with it. Japan has been considering legislation. Denmark became the first European country to revoke resident status for more than 200 Syrian refugees.
1: And the current administration is dealing with immigration policies enacted by a previous administration. And the picture seems to change almost weekly, sometimes because of court rulings.
2: That's why we've invited two people with extensive backgrounds in immigration law to help us understand this complicated issue. First is Katie Meyer, the director of the Immigration Law Clinic at Washington University and an associate professor of practice. During her 20-year career, she has specialized in immigration law and legal services. Also joining us is Vivek Malik, the owner of the law offices of Vivek Malik. He's been practicing immigration law for more than two decades in India and in the United States.
1: So let's, Let me start with Vivek for a moment. It sounds from your background as if you not only practice immigration law, but you have lived immigration law. You are an immigrant. Can you walk us through your experiences and how it has helped you in your practice?
3: Bob, thank you very much. Yes, I am an immigrant. My kids are first generation. So I came to this country about 17 years ago in 2003 as a student on an F-1 visa, what we call it, and I went to school to complete a master's in business administration and then on to law school to finish a master's in law degree and then took the bar exam and started on to this career to practice law. And prior to coming to the U.S., I was practicing law in New Delhi. I did have a small, not a long practice there, but did practice for about four years before I came to the U.S. So yes, I have lived this through my own experience, not only dealing with clients, but Going through the journey myself, which we today call the employment based immigration, where your general progression is if you want to stay in this country, you come as a student, you apply for a job, you get an employer who is willing to sponsor you for a non immigrant work visa, usually an H 1B. And a during the H 1B process, if you are liked as an employee, the employer would sponsor you for a Green card, and that's how I became a permanent resident of this country after being here for almost nine years before I received my green card. And then, after five years of receiving that green card, I obtained my citizenship, and so did my family, and had my kids born here. So, yes, I have lived this, and this definitely helps me connect with my clients because they understand that this is a person who has gone through this painful process and understands the agony, the frustrations, and I can relate to it with them, understanding what it takes
1: to be an immigrant and to go through this process. I was interested in those words, painful and frustrating and things like that. I don't think most people realize that the process you have to go through and all of the other problems that you run into in that process. And could you fill us in a little bit on, on how that went for you? Yes. (laughs)
3: Again, now, Katie can definitely fill in from a different perspective dealing with immigrants coming from a very different background, such as refugees or asylees. That's as her practice area is. But I can relate to the employment side of it, especially coming from a country which is oversubscribed, which is India. Uh, When we talk about India, the people who have come from India to immigrate to the U.S. since the advent of this IT boom, the starting of early 2000 or late 1990s, there have been a lot of influx from the South Asian country in the IT sector, and all these people eventually have applied to become a permanent resident in this country, and that oversubscribed the quota. As uh, to just generally define that every country in the United States has to meet a quota for becoming a resident. And that has made the process for some people coming from countries like Philippines, India, or China, a very cumbersome process. At one point, as about three years ago, the wait to become a permanent resident, that means to have a green card, if you are a citizen of India, it would take you about 150 years. It has still gone down to something what we call still manageable, which I say about 35 to 40 years. But if somebody applies for a green card based on employment today, he may still have to wait 40 years before he gets his green card and there has been constant effort in the legislation to improve that system but due to all the partisan politics and things we haven't been able to achieve that and so when i say yes it's a painful process not only for people from india but for everybody because the hoops that you have to cross through the departments different departments that you have to deal with whether we initially to deal with department of labor State Department of Labor, then the Federal Department of Labor, then to deal with the USCIS, which is Department of Homeland Security. After that, you have to deal with the Department of State. And to deal with all these different departments and all those very, very meticulous and procedural hurdles that you have to cross, it definitely makes it very, very cumbersome
1: and painful. You really have to want to come here then. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So Vivek, you're just describing the weight for a work visa, is that correct? Yes. And so I know that there is more than one type of visa. Could you describe some of the various types of visas that are available?
3: A visa is basically just a document that would give you access to entry into any foreign country. So when you talk about a U.S. visa, we would, in general, distinguish it in two uh, different categories, immigrant and non-immigrant. So immigrant visa is a visa where you want to immigrate permanently to that country and become a resident of that country. And eventually, if you decide to opt for a citizenship, you can become a naturalized citizen. A non-immigrant visa, on the other hand, can also be distinguished partitioned to two, which is a single intent non-immigrant visa or a dual intent non-immigrant visa. A single intent, I would say, people who are intending to come to the United States just for a visit as a tourist or as a student or an exchange visitor who would come here, finish their studies, and then return back to their home country, or a dual-intent visa holders who would come to this country for work, for example, on H-1B or an L-1A or an L visa, and then decide whether they want to live in this country and opt for an immigrant visa or return to their home country. So when we talk about visas, you will have basically two broad categories, immigrant and non-immigrant visas.
4: And I'll add to that, in addition to the two broad types, immigrant and non-immigrant, non-immigrant we often call a temporary visa because you do not have an intent to remain permanently in the US and you cannot, or at least have not yet shown you would qualify for those limited permanent visas that we call immigrant visas. And then under the non-immigrant category, there are currently 22 different non-immigrant or temporary visa categories. Each of those categories has its own requirements and rules. And some of those categories are further subdivided into subcategories of that visa. And each of those have different rules and different requirements. And so, yes, the, the word visa is a very, very broad term. And typically, if a client were to contact one of our offices and say, I want to apply for a visa, we wouldn't need to have a pretty lengthy consultation with that individual and even their family to determine what, if any, visa that may actually be available to them. It sounds like there needs to
2: be, I'm envisioning a chart with lots of different arrows on it, trying to help you figure out what visa, if as you said, if any, work. Is that part of what makes this process so complicated?
4: Yes, definitely. And in fact, you say a chart, there actually is a really Meant to be tongue in cheek, comical kind of cartoon drawing with arrows of and it's titled like, why is it so hard to just get in line for immigration? Right. And it shows you all the paths and how many years it might take. And it's meant to be comical, but it's actually quite accurate. I'd be happy to share that if if that's something you'd be interested in linking. But, yes, it's immigration law is absolutely rightly referred to as the second most complicated area of law in all of U.S. law, and that's after tax law. The immigration statute called the Immigration and Nationality Act is, I mean, it's a book you could use as a pillow, right? I mean, it's a very thick book, hundreds and hundreds of pages long that goes through what the statute says. That's what Congress wrote into law. Then, We have an even bigger book that's all of the federal regulations written by the administrative agencies as to what the rules are to comply with Congress's laws and to apply for these various categories. So it's a very complicated area of the law. For sure, and no one, no one case is like any other case. You know, it's, it's much like fingerprints. I mean, every case is so unique because of the various just small factors that could have a profound impact on someone's eligibility for immigration status.
3: And on top of that, then you have these uh, agencies issuing office memos, interoffice memos, presidential proclamations, and different circuit courts and Supreme Court issuing decisions, which do change uh, whatever is existing uh, at that current time. So it is the most dynamic law, I would say, even more than so tax law, because at least in tax law, you will have those changes once a year or twice a year. But in immigration law, you would see them pretty much every day. So even for attorneys, it is very hard to play catch up with the law.
1: It sounds to me as if this process could be pretty expensive for somebody who wants to come to this country. Is that Absolutely.
3: Right? Yes and no. If you are in a particular category trying to come here under humanitarian law, that could not be an expensive fare. But if you're coming here for work-related purposes or any business-related
1: purposes, yes, it could be very expensive. Humanitarian issues. Can you fill us in a little bit on what that is and what falls under
4: Sure. Humanitarian immigration is just a really broad term. You aren't going to find that in the statute or in the regulations, but it's just a broad term for a category of immigration statuses or even just temporary immigration protections that are afforded to someone because of a unique humanitarian circumstance. We have some of our broader and well-known programs such as our overseas refugee program where people who are determined by the United Nations to be refugees and then get referred by the United Nations or an international refugee organization to be screened to come to the US, come to the US as a refugee. That's our refugee program. Then we have our asylum system. and An asylum is a process by which anyone who is on U.S. soil, regardless of the manner or place of entry, so it doesn't matter how they got here, whether they entered lawfully, the law says they are allowed to apply for asylum if they are unable and unwilling to return to their home country because of persecution they experienced in the past or persecution they fear in the future. Persecution is a very specific type of harm And on top of it, the persecution, the applicant must prove that the persecution is on account of only one of five specific grounds on account of their race, on account of their religion, their nationality, their membership in a particular social group or their political opinion. That is its own extremely complicated area of the law. And despite the fact it was designed as a humanitarian program where someone who was fleeing serious harm might get protection in the U.S., Currently, our system is struggling to function as it was designed to, and most applicants are waiting anywhere from three to five years to even get the first answer on an asylum application. In my opinion, unnecessarily long process, which leaves people in a legal limbo, really, many of those applicants are legally not allowed to apply for permission to work while their asylum application is pending. So while, you know, as Vivek said, it was perhaps designed to be a a not expensive process, in reality, if you think about paying a lawyer over three to five years to keep having to work on your case, and the law keeps changing, it actually can be quite a costly process, both in terms of paying a lawyer if you cannot find a free attorney, but also in terms of not being able to lawfully work during much or most of that process. So that's asylum. There are then some other categories that fall under humanitarian immigration that would include temporary protected status for individuals who are already in the U.S. on a certain date. And the U.S., the Office of the President, the executive branch, decides that we could not basically in good consciousness, right? We couldn't, for humanitarian reasons, send people back to a country that is currently undergoing or recovering from, for example, a natural disaster, a major hurricane, an earthquake, and the infrastructures are not there, or if there's ongoing civil war. And so the U.S. will periodically grant temporary protected status to individuals who you know, meet certain requirements. Other humanitarian protections include special non-immigrant, so temporary visas for immigrant victims of crimes in the U.S., including domestic violence crimes, including really serious crimes. It even includes uh, family members of of, uh, murder victims. We also have special protections for immigrants who were trafficked. So we have a special visa called a T-Visa for victims of human trafficking. And we have another broad category of humanitarian protection for spouses- only lawful spouses of U.S. citizens or permanent residents when that non-citizen spouse was abused by the U.S. citizen or or permanent resident spouse. I'm sure there are some more, there's some other just kind of temporary options to try to say, get someone into the U.S. very temporarily for urgent medical care that's not available in their country. We call that humanitarian parole. But broadly, that's what we're talking about when we talk about humanitarian immigration.
3: Yeah. And I, you may or may not agree, but I would also put DACA under that humanitarian provisions as well.
4: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. DACA is really unique. I mean, I agree. I think it could go at this point, that's probably the only logical place to put it because it's it's really just a, a standalone program. As listeners might know, DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And so DACA was a special program created under the Obama administration, intended to give temporary relief to those young persons who would have benefited under the DREAM Act. The DREAM Act has been debated in Congress for over 20 years, has had bipartisan support over the years, but has never passed. And at the time the Obama administration created DACA, there had been ongoing discussion in Congress about the DREAM Act, which would give a path, not immediately, but give a path for so-called DREAMers, those young people who were brought to the U.S. as children without any status, but had no choice really in, or no you know, say in the matter, to give them a path to eventual permanent residency, what everyone calls a green card, and then from there, a path to citizenship. And so deferred action is not a new, was not a new program under the Obama administration. Deferred action has existed for decades in our immigration system. It's referred to in the regulations. That definitely falls under our humanitarian system. Deferred action is was just an option given to the Immigration Enforcement Agency, originally INS, now ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, giving them an option to decide in their discretion as as enforcers of the law that a certain individual really, for humanitarian reasons, even though they were legally deported, should not be deported. Oftentimes it had to do with need for health care in the U.S. or a very sick family member. And so they would, on a case-by-case basis, review the information and decide to grant someone deferred action. And deferred action just means a grant to defer or put off to a later date, taking any enforcement action against a person, so deferred action. Typically, it would be granted for a set period of time, one year, two years, and the person would be eligible to apply for permission to work during that time. And so deferred action for childhood arrivals, DACA, um, is an extension of that where instead of the president saying to the enforcement officers, you need to consider each one of these applications, each time brand new decide as as an agency whether to grant deferred action, we're gonna give you some criteria. And we're gonna say, if they meet these requirements, they're generally going to qualify although you should review each case very closely and make a case by case determination and so it was just a more guided and specific use of deferred action but it, it was not a new creation it has long been part of our humanitarian system and that was admittedly a long answer but i think hopefully it gives some context
2: indeed you were talking about the enforcement officers taking action is it regulators administrative staff these enforcement officers who are making the decision on visas?
4: So it depends, as Vivek was mentioning earlier, there are multiple U.S. agencies involved in the immigration system. And so it depends at which step a case is at, which administrative agency and which type of officer will be making a decision. But ultimately, every decision in an immigration case is made by an individual officer, Perhaps it's gone up for supervisory review before that decision was issued, but ultimately these are subjective decisions made by human beings in case-by-case matters, and the officers have varying levels of expertise and educational background depending on the agency and the position that they're in.
3: And if I have to kind of walk you through the process, let's say if I'm a foreigner applying to come to the US. So I would apply for a visa at the US consulate where official from the Department of State would make a decision on my application where to approve or deny me that visa. That's where the administrative person comes in to make a decision first at the first level. Then once I board the plane and come to the shores, i will be meeting the person from cbp customs and water protection at the port of entry whether it's a land port a seaport or an airport and that is the second level where i will be stopped and inspected and given a decision whether i am allowed to enter the country or i'm denied an entry into the country and cbp is an agency of department of homeland security from there on once i move into the country if i'm allowed admission then I'll be dealing with, if I want to change my visa status to a different thing, a work visa or something, I'll be dealing with another agency called the USCIS, United States of Immigration Services. And if I'm going through that, I may be dealing with Department of Labor at that point, or to get some sort of or I may be referring back to Department of State to get a paper. So from then, if I commit something wrong, if I did something illegal, I am I committed a crime, then I would be dealing with the local... State enforcement agencies and the local state laws or the federal law. And if convicted, then we'll uh, go through that conviction to the sentence of the state or federal law. And from there, I will be picked up by enforcement, ICE, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, and then will be put through the system with Department of Justice, where the Department of Justice will then decide on my whether I can stay in this country or not, and I'll be applying for waivers or if I'm eligible for any waivers or not. And finally, we'll be making a decision whether I'm able to stay. If I'm not able to stay, I'll be issued a deportation order. And then I'll be going through from the Department of Justice into the mainstream of Judiciary, which is our circuit courts. So if I'm appealing my decisions from the Department of Justice, I'll be going to this, the federal court system. And once the federal courts makes a decision, that will be a final decision for me to allow to stay in this country or to leave the country. And then the circle, if I am deported, then again, back, I'm at square one dealing with the Department of State to get a visa again. <laughs> so that's kind of a run through the system that how many agencies I have to deal with while I'm going through this process.
1: Well, think you raised an interesting point when you talk about circuit courts and so on. What, what access to the United States court system do immigrants have, no matter whether what card they're operating on or what their status is, do they have the same kind of access to the courts that citizens have?
4: So as everything in immigration law, I think it sort of depends on what the context is. But I will say that generally the Supreme Court has recognized that immigrants have basic due process rights in this country. So immigrants do have a right to access our courts and immigrants um certainly could file a lawsuit you know as a plaintiff themselves if if they believe they've been wronged in some way and they are entitled to due process there are some limitations uh, for example depending on the state law or the US federal circuit court law in some areas if an immigrant who is working for an employer files a lawsuit that they were wrongly discharged for some reason, whether it's employment discrimination or, you know, violations of labor laws. They file a lawsuit even if they win, if they can't prove they were authorized to work at the time the incident occurred, in some states they may not be entitled to back pay. So there are some limitations on remedies, but generally access to courts is open to anyone who's in the U.S. And that I'm talking broadly, not about Immigration courts or courts related to their immigration case, just access to courts that people might need for all aspects of their life. When it comes to their immigration case, there's limited option to go to the court system, the true judicial branch of our government. Typically, you at least first have to go through many agencies and go through all the agencies' requirements before you might become. Able to bring an immigration case into the US judicial branch. All of the immigration agencies are part of our executive branch, the president's branch of the government. And so, even immigration court, when we talk about that, is not part of the judicial branch. That's part of the executive branch. And so, again, it it really depends on the situation, but oftentimes you at least have to have started and sometimes even kind of completed the process at the agency before you can get the US courts involved, although there are some limited exceptions. If you want to just basically claim the agency is just doing nothing, it's sitting there not making a decision either way, then in some cases you can basically sue them in court.
3: And as rightly said by Katie, anybody who's in the U.S. may have access to the U.S. court system. But let's say if you are a foreign national and you applied for a visa, a work visa, and you feel that your visa was unjustly denied and you were not given a fair hearing, there is no appeal process. That decision of the consular officer is an absolute decision, and there is no appeal process from that decision.
2: So that really struck me because normally in America's judicial branch, if you think the decision was wrong, you have the right to appeal all the way up to the US Supreme mm-hmm. Court. So you're saying when it comes to immigration court, there's basically you just have that like one shot for a fair day or a fair hearing. And then whatever final determination is made, then if they say, no, you don't gain status, you go back to your home
4: country. So those are two different processes that we were speaking of. So okay. Vivek, Vivek was talking about a specific decision related to a visa. Remember, a visa is that entry document that starts someone's journey to even be allowed to board uh, you know an aircraft or a, <laughs> or a boat to come to the US right if a visa is denied there is no appeal process it's it's actually referred to in the law as consular absolutism they have absolute power there is absolute discretion in deciding these visa applications and so there that is a very just clear line there is no appeal there when you talk about someone in immigration court you only end up in immigration court if you have if you're physically in the United States Right. And so you may have come already lawfully entered on a visa or you may be here after having entered without having any contact with it, with the immigration authorities. But you're already in the U.S. That, again, because anyone who's on U.S. soil, the U.S. Supreme Court has said the Constitution affords due process to anyone on U.S. soil. That there are some additional procedural rights, including generally a right to an appeal for those who end up in immigration court. That appeal can be waived. In some cases, if you ask for certain relief, certain ways to avoid deportation, you may be waiving your appeal. It's sort of a, a quid pro quo. We'll consider giving you this alternative to deportation, but you can't appeal. But the general rule is that there is a right to appeal an immigration decision. However, that right to appeal is not into our U.S. court system. It's into a higher body within the executive branch. So it's called the Board of Immigration Appeals, or BIA. It's a board of agency appellate judges who review decisions made by the lower immigration judges that sit in the courts. And so everyone's entitled to an appeal to the Board of Immigration Appeals if they You know, they file it on time. But that's a final decision. Once that agency makes a decision, it's final. And ICE, the enforcement branch, could go and deport the person the day after that Board of Immigration Appeals decision comes down. A person has a right on their own to file basically a lawsuit against the U.S. government to challenge that agency final decision. It's called a petition for review in the U.S. circuit courts. But that does not stop their deportation that doesn't make their decision unfinal. I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, their decision remains a final immigration decision. And the U.S. government could deport them while that appeal is going on in federal court, unless the federal court grants a stay, a, a request to stay or stop the deportation pending that trial. Yeah. So um, again, as with everything with immigration, it's a complicated answer.
1: How serious a violation of law does there have to be to trigger a deportation mm-hmm. action for someone.
4: Very little. Vivek, I'll let you talk on this too, because you may have more examples of this. But I think the one that comes to my mind that really highlights just how little it can take is someone who's lawfully in the US on a student visa and has has reached a point in their studies where they have permission to work, but their permission to work is only on campus or and or only for a limited number of hours during each week during the academic year. And this person's really struggling. So they take a job at McDonald's on the weekend and they get put in deportation for that because that violates the terms of their visa. So, I mean, a a very small violation, right? Very often working without authorization or working beyond the terms of one's authorization, overstaying a visa by even one day technically can get you in deportation proceedings. So even very small Infractions. And Vivek, I'm, I'm sure you have some examples within the employment based context as well.
3: Yeah, and you're very correct, Katie. I think any small violation, and we're not talking about criminal issues here. I mean, you get into criminal issues, uh, small things that we see every day, a small theft, DUIs, okay. possession, for which In general, a county prosecutor would give you a plea deal, but that's not a case with immigration law. So the consequences are very severe. The courts, the Supreme Court has called them a collateral damage as to, so that's where we see that law is not fair because if you are a US citizen for a similar or same crime, the amount of sentence or punishment what you get compared to if you are an immigrant and you are on a green card or on a visa for the same or similar offense or crime, you don't only get that punishment or conviction or sentence, but you are also deportable or deported. That is a collateral punishment in addition to what you have always already faced or are going through. So I would say it is doubling up on whatever your sentence is. So in that regard, what Katie said, a small violation would trigger that. Mm -hmm. If you are staying beyond your authorized stay uh, during Trump administration, that was a thing that if you stay beyond your authorized stay, you could be issued NTA if you violated your student status. Uh, Initially, you were categorized as somebody who is out of status, that if you fell out of your status, you're not taking your full credit hours that you're supposed to take as a student. You would just be labeled as uh, out of status. But now it became a norm that as soon as you fell out of status, your service, which is the document that the Department of State keeps as a record of you as a student, they would trigger it to take you out of status, and also the USCIS would issue you an NTA, which is noticed to appear in an immigration court to face deportation proceedings. So to answer your question, Farah, a very small violation would trigger these immigration consequences.
4: I think the other thing really important to note is that there is no guarantee of counsel, of right to counsel in immigration court. There is no public defender system for deportation court, despite the fact that there's a growing consensus among the federal courts that the consequences can be quite extreme, including life or death in some cases. And so immigrants either face this very complex immigration court system on their own or they have to pay thousands of dollars in legal representation fees because of the complex nature of these cases. These aren't like traffic cases that can be handled in one hearing. These hearings typically drag on for years. I just think it's important important to point that out too that while a very trivial thing can trigger it and can get someone into this very complex system, there is no guarantee that someone will have a, a counsel to represent them.
1: You know, it just strikes me as being awfully petty and awfully unfair. You folks have dealt with this. Is that really is that an accurate assessment on a lot of these cases?
4: Yeah, I think it can be, certainly. I mean immigration is an administrative area of the law, you know, and so there are rules <laughs> and if they're not followed, the usually the, you know, there's another rule that says if you violate any of these terms, you are deportable right? And so it's very, uh, you know, a regulatory system. Again, it gets compared to tax law at times, right? I mean, this is personally why I hire someone to do my taxes, because I'm too worried I would make a mistake on a, you know, on one of the forms or somewhere during the process, and then later be found to have, you know, to owe the IRS all this money and owe them all these penalties and fines. Whereas here, the penalty and fine is you find yourself subject to deportation and potentially barred from the US for the rest of your life. So it is, it's a tedious regulatory process. I don't know, Vivek, if you have another
3: way to frame it. No, I, I guess you, you, you hit it on the nail, uh, Katie, because yes, if you miss your taxes, the the worst you can face is some penalties and some interest. And you can refile your tax. So you can amend your taxes, not in the immigration law. Once you're out of status, there is a limited time you can get back into status or even not that. And once you're out of status, you're out of luck.
4: Yeah. And that, that's also why it's so important. I, I'm sure every area of law lawyers say it's so important to have a lawyer in this area of the law, but it really is crucial to not only have a lawyer walk clients through these complex application processes, but to have a lawyer who specializes in immigration. It's such a complex area. And as Vivek said, it changes weekly, if not daily, that it's not just a matter of knowing which form to file, right? Oh, well, this sounds like this is my situation. I'm going to file this form. Even filing the wrong form could get someone put into deportation proceedings or end up with the decision that says they're barred from entry to the U.S. for life. How to answer questions on the form can be very fact specific. So it it is, it's just much more complicated than many people think. We often hear, you know, it's, it's file some forms and pay some fees. And in some cases, it can be that simple. But I would say in most cases, even where people have followed the law to a T it's just not that simple. I mean, just the way our laws are written is very complicated.
1: This lifetime ban seems to be pretty draconian to me for somebody Mm -hmm. who makes a simple mistake like you've been talking about, though.
4: Yeah, there are several different different bans. They range from uh, a minimum of three years, a three-year ban. If you kind of attempt to enter the U.S., you're apprehended and you're immediately returned. You might have something as, as small as a three-year ban. There are 10-year bans for having been in the U.S. for more than one year without permission and then departing the U.S., whether on your own or whether being you know, forced to leave, um, you're then barred for 10 years from re-entry, even if you are eligible for a visa. Even if you're married to a U.S. citizen, you have five U.S. citizen kids, you're subject to that ban. There's a different 10-year ban for having been ordered deported from the U.S. For those bans that I've mentioned, in most cases, unless there is a very serious criminal conviction, in most cases, the person could talk to a lawyer and see, am I eligible to apply for a waiver? Can I waive that 10 year bar? Try to get, you know, if they have a visa approved, a visa petition, like they've proved they're eligible for a visa and they would get it. But for their bar, they might be able to file this waiver, sometimes called a pardon asking for, you know, I'm really sorry. I realize now I shouldn't have broken the law. You know, these are the circumstances. And the only way they can do that is if they can meet the standard for the waiver. It varies. But the most common one is proving that it would cause exceptional an exceptional level of hardship to their U.S. citizen or permanent resident family member that counts for that application. Um, Most often it's only a spouse or a parent and they don't count hardship to a, a child. And so those can be weighed. There's another bar that we call And, 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 and yeah, just to, add to, to yeah.
3: add to add to your comment on there, Katie, I think the U.S. the immigration laws do not consider separation of spouses if they are living in different countries as an exceptional hardship.
4: Exactly. So
3: if what if the U.S. spouse or, or partner can travel to the foreign country, then it is not a hardship. So just having in two different continents. It doesn't count as a hardship. Exactly. So it has to be emotional hardship, psychological hardship, physical hardship, health-related hardship, financial hardship. So you have to prove all these criteria to get those kind of favors. Yes. Sorry.
4: Sorry
3: to interrupt. Oh
4: no, that's 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 great. Yes. Yeah. What the courts have said is it must be hardship much higher than you would expect just anytime there's a separation of a family member. But then there's a, a category of bar that we call the permanent bar, where someone is not even able to file for one of those waivers unless they first stay out of the United States for a minimum of 10 years. Only then can they even file the waiver, and there's no guarantee that they'll be granted it at the end of that 10-year period. That waiver gets triggered by someone if they were Unlawfully present in the U.S. for one year or more, or were deported from the U.S., left the U.S. and came back. So, someone say had come, you know, in the '90s and very early 2000s. It was much more common for someone to come and do, say, seasonal farm work for a period of time, and then return to their family and do that every few years. And so, if someone had accumulated in the aggregate one year of unlawful presence in the U.S. and left the U.S and then came back again, they're subject to this permanent bar. Or if they had been in the U.S., even lawfully, say they entered on a visitor visa that allowed them to stay six months, but they stayed two years. And then they got picked up by immigration and deported. Then they have a deportation on their record. They leave. They again try to come back in. They're going to be barred for life. And so that's sort of like a two-strike rule, right? Immigration law, they say, we don't give you three strike. two strikes, and you're out. You know, you had two violations, that's the most strict one. And so when I say that, you know, filling out forms incorrectly can lead to that, I've seen situations where the actual facts were not that the person was in the US for a year without permission, left and was now seeking to return, but they'd had someone fill out forms for them in the past who was not a lawyer or maybe not experienced in immigration, and they put information on the form that wasn't true thinking it would help them. Oh, it'll look better if you've been here. And in the end what it did is is, you know, got them permanently barred. And that's where when I say at the beginning, every case is so unique, that's what I mean. I mean, just the smallest difference, right? Well, my neighbor and I have the exact same situation. We came from the same country at the same time. But one little difference, if you know, one of them had previously come to the U.S. to visit a family member, that could make a huge difference in their case.
3: And to add to that, sometimes these mistakes are so innocent. And to give you an example, and where the peril is actually because of the state-induced peril, for example, an immigrant... And we have a big population of Bosnian in St. Louis, and a lot of them don't speak English very well and do not understand it very well. If somebody is from Bosnia, came as a refugee, went to DMV to get his driver's license, and at the driver's license window, the clerk is asking, are you registered to vote? And they said, no, would you like to register to vote? Or sometimes they don't even ask that question. Presume that the person who's applying for driver's licenses probably should register to vote and say, do you want me to register you to, for vote? And they don't know well, say yes or no. And they say, if they say no, they won't get a driver's license. And they say uh, yes. And they register whether while they are permanent resident. And you cannot register to vote if you are a permanent resident. You have to be a U.S. citizen. But mistakenly, you check the box without realizing that this can get you into trouble. It can initiate your deportation proceedings when you go in to file your nationalization application. Some people mistakenly believe that if they are registered to vote, they can vote because there has been radio ads from some of the secretaries of state from our state or different states that if you are registered to vote, you can vote. But not true in every case. Sometimes there is a random draw of people from the database of DOR, DMV, where people are pulled out to serve on jury duties. You cannot serve on a jury duty unless you are a US citizen. But the database that the court system uses is your driver license database. Well, not every driver license holder in the state is a citizen, but you would mistakenly get, a, and now seeing a notice from the court that you are obligated to show up, they sometimes show up, and sometimes there's a mistake by a clerk, they do not go through the complete checklist whether the person is a citizen or not, and they do not know better whether they should serve on jury or not. And they serve on the jury by mistake, and now it's a deportation proceeding they are facing because of the mistake that was not induced by them. I would say not because of sometimes their own mistakes, but the mistakes committed because of somebody else, and especially some state actors face these perils.
1: This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English.
0: Judge? Legal As I listen to this splendid discussion of immigration, I think, wow, that is complicated. So I feel moved to say something simple, and I will. When I hear people arguing about the immigration problem in the United States today, I'm reminded of what an American Indian client told me when I worked as a legal services lawyer in South Dakota some decades ago. The client said, quote, all the problems we face in the United States today can be traced to an unenlightened immigration policy on the part of the American Indian." And I close that quote. My client was repeating a joke that originated with a popular comedian of a generation or two ago. It reminds us that except for American Indians, also known appropriately as Native Americans, we all are immigrants. I took a test a few years ago. It was a civics practice test, which I found on the website of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. I took the test because a friend who once served our state as governor, called and asked me to sign on to a proposal that every high school student in Missouri before graduating be required to pass the same test that immigrants must pass in order to become citizens. My friend's point was a serious one, because our democracy is entirely dependent on our citizenry having a basic knowledge of civics. What do we long-time Americans know? A poll several years ago by a reputable polling firm found that more Americans could name the original three stooges than could name the three branches of government. By the way, the three branches are executive, legislative, and the judicial. But you knew that. And the original three stooges, for those of you in the audience who had culturally deprived childhoods, were Larry, Curly, and Moe. The same survey found that 87% of Americans knew the names of at least one of the seven dwarfs in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I remembered three, Sneezy, Grumpy, and Doc. Only 39% of those who polled could name one justice of the United States Supreme Court. And by the way, Judge Judy and those other judges who are on TV, not a correct answer. Why is this important? Let me turn uncomfortably to the political rhetoric that surrounds us today. When a presidential candidate promises free college tuition, or another candidate promises to build a wall to keep immigrants from crossing our southern border, a knowledgeable voter might ask, can the president really do that? all by himself? I hope not. What an individual official can do in our society, even at the highest level, is tempered by our system of checks and balances. Most of what presidential candidates specifically promise in order to bring hope and change or to make us great again or whatever depends on Congress passing laws, and when those laws are challenged, there is a court system that will measure those enactments against the rigors of our Constitution. Our system brings order out of chaos. We live in a country that is big and, quite frankly, messy. Except for Native Americans, we come from many parts of the world, rather recently, in fact, and we bring with us our individual ethnic, religious, and genetic identities. So I might ask, why am I here? I am here because a man named Andrew Wolfe left Dresden, Germany in 1795 and settled near Germantown, Pennsylvania, farmed and married a neighbor woman who also was Pennsylvania Dutch. I am here because Mike Ganey and his bride of County Cork left impoverished Ireland in the 19th century and settled near St. Charles, Minnesota. He was a tenant farmer. I do not know much else about these and other forebears who are part of my gene pool. What I like to think about these women and men who came to this country and built lives from which I descended is that they were resourceful and that they were brave. They uprooted themselves and moved half a world away. At the end of the 19th century, my wolf great-grandfather, a minister, preached against Catholics. Ouch. My gainy forebears were Irish Catholics. My gene pool is thus at war with itself. Over the decades and centuries, millions who have come to our country have brought with them their customs, traditions, religious beliefs, or no beliefs at all. Only Africans came involuntarily, and their stories, as heartbreaking as any, are part of this messy mosaic as well. My point is, we have no common national origin or ethnicity, that forms our shared identity as Americans. Instead, our identity has been forged by the rule of law and by our common experience and faithfulness to the law that seeks to guarantee liberty, equality of opportunity, and a functioning civil society, even in the face of those who, through ambition or power or wealth, would seek to impose their will on the less powerful. The revolutionaries who signed the Declaration of Independence understood that oppression occurs when those in power control law for their own purposes. They understood it is vital to have a stable justice system, to have law based on certain fundamental principles and not on the arbitrary whims of those who hold governmental power of the moment. Our founders were wary of the tyranny not only of a king, but also of political majorities. They realized in creating our Constitution that a governmental system needs checks and balances to ensure that the most fundamental principle of our nation the law would be protected for generations to follow. Varying factions should be kept in check as one of the authors of our Constitution, James Madison, argued in Federalist Paper No. 10, so that no particular group in society and no particular branch of government should hold limitless power. James Madison, by the way, was the answer to one of the questions on the citizenship test. Power is distributed among the three branches of the federal government and between the states and the federal government. Congress and nearly all of our state legislatures consist of two chambers, a House of Representatives and a Senate. In the federal system, each state, regardless of how big or small, has two senators. By the way, as a teacher, I might ask, which one state has only one legislative chamber? If you said, Nebraska, you can go to the head of the citizenship class. The division and distribution of power of checks and balances help protect basic human liberties. We did not get it entirely right from the beginning. We fought a civil war that brought constitutional protections of due process and equal protection of the law to all of us, including former slaves. We are still trying to get this right. We believe we can get it right. Oh, yes, uh, the citizen test. A few years ago, when my friend asked me to support the proposal that all high school graduates pass the citizenship test, I was not enthusiastic. We keep asking our teachers to do more and more with less and less, I said. After a long season of listening to what passes as political argument in this country, I have changed my mind. The questions on the test are pretty simple. For example, name one branch of the government. What is one right or freedom in the First Amendment? What are two rights that are referred to in the Declaration of Independence? We elect a United States senator for how many years? When I was taking the citizenship test, I thought about how we— who were born here are in fact so free that our government does not require us to know anything. Our country does not require us citizens to vote or otherwise to participate in its civic life. We do require service on juries, however, and I've found this to be an important lesson for all of us involved in the legal system, and I hope you all will have that very democratic experience. Perhaps I could close with an assignment for those of you who have lived in America your whole lives. Please go online and take the citizenship practice test. And then make sure you are registered to vote. Please vote. Don't leave the fate of the republic to those who know less than you do. The highest office is not president. It is citizen. Our first president, George Washington, believed this, and after two terms as president, he left office and went home and resumed the high office of citizen. The citizen's most effective tool is the vote. Remember that when the Constitutional Convention was finished deliberating in secrecy to write the Constitution, Benjamin Franklin, our oldest and wisest founding father was asked, What kind of government will we have? A republic, Franklin replied, if you can keep it. Your vote is the key to keeping it. This is Mike Wolf, Citizen. Legal Ease.
2: We've talked about the difficulty of reaching either permanent residence status. I'd like to kind of flip the coin and talk about maybe the good the good endings now. Can you tell us what the difference is between, you know, having a green card or being a permanent resident, naturalization, and then U.S. citizenship, and what it kind of takes to get to each of those tiers. Sure. Vivek, do you want to start?
3: Sure. So, yes, I became a green card holder. That was one of my happiest days. And then to hold the American flag and the Constitution and take the oath of allegiance on my oath ceremony, that was second happiest day of my life after definitely i had my kids here That the birth of my kids was definitely i will proceed all that but but yes it, it is an experience you go through it and you enjoy it and the day you become a u.s citizen it is relieving you feel that you have completed circle you're out of this loop and now you're free and you feel that now you whatever you want to do, you will not be restricted from any of those restrictions that are posed upon you being a permanent resident or being a visa holder, whether it is related to your travel, whether it is related to starting your own businesses or doing something that you always wanted to do, picking up hobbies, whether it is owning guns or whatever it is. So I would say it is definitely a priority for people, whether they want to become a U.S. citizen or remain a national or citizen of their own country, where will they come from? But if you are in this country chasing that American dream, that is the pinnacle of it, uh, becoming a U.S. citizen and then going on with your journey, whatever you wish to do.
4: Yeah, it's wonderful to hear that firsthand perspective. I, I also feel as someone who has just walked with immigrants through the journey, I mean, Going to a naturalization ceremony, which is the ceremony whereby someone becomes a US citizen through the process of naturalization, is just one of the happiest. I mean, it probably is the happiest part of my job (laughs) Um, and is just so wonderful to see. Backing up a little bit, Farah, you asked kind of what's the difference between a green card, naturalization and citizenship. So a green card is not a legal term. I mean, we all use it. It's fine to use it. But a green card is a colloquial term that developed for a status known as lawful permanent resident status or lawful permanent residency. And that is someone who has been granted immigrant status in the U.S., Someone who has lawful permanent residence, LPR, or a green card, or is an immigrant, those are all the same thing. They all mean the same thing. So the kind of basic foundational way of doing that is someone applies for an immigrant visa out of the United States under one of three categories that we have, family-based, based on having one of very specific close family relationships. Employment base that Vivek has talked about and can talk more about. And we have a diversity visa program where citizens from specific countries who have historically sent low numbers of immigrants to the US can literally apply to have their name put in a lottery. So if someone's approved for an immigrant visa, they travel to the US, they're admitted, they are permanent residents. There's a second process for someone who's already in the US. So, like in Vivek's case, he was already in the US. He entered as a non-immigrant and went through several different processes, and eventually his immigrant visa was approved when he was here, not overseas. So he went through a process called adjustment of status, where he Mm -hmm. applied for his lawful permanent resident status while living in the United States. Either way, it's the same status, right? No matter how you get it, once you're a lawful permanent resident, you are basically one step legally speaking, one step below a citizen when it comes to your rights in this country. Although it's called permanent residency, you can lose it. You can be placed into deportation proceedings, have your permanent residency taken from you and be deported in certain circumstances. Most common is committing As Vivek said, even a minor criminal offense. You also could have your permanent residency taken away if if it turned out you lied or committed some sort of fraud, sometimes even unintentional. But if there was some serious mistake on your application and it could be considered that you had done it on purpose, you could lose it. Anyway, once you're a permanent resident, then and only then can you start accruing the time and the credentials to apply for naturalization. Naturalization is the process of becoming a U.S. citizen for someone who was not afforded citizenship at birth. So someone could be afforded citizenship at birth by being born in the U.S. or by being born to parents of U.S. citizens under specific circumstances. Naturalization and U.S. citizenship, I mean, they go hand in hand, right? Naturalization is the process of becoming a citizen. But if you make it through the naturalization process and you are naturalized, you are a U.S. citizen. And you have all the same rights as a U.S. citizen by birth. You get the right to vote, as Vivek was saying, the right to serve on a jury. You can now apply for and work in certain government, U.S. government positions that are restricted to citizens. You will have absolutely no travel restrictions. Even permanent residents have to pay attention to specific travel restrictions. So really, I mean, you you have all the rights of what we call a natural born U.S. citizen. and
3: Except for one.
4: Anything else? We'll go ahead. Except for one. Uh, and the that president. is to run
3: for, run for the office of the president.
4: Very good. Yes, that's a very good point. <laughs> yes.
2: I remember I went home from school one day in grade school very young, upset at my mom because I thought it meant that I couldn't be president of the United States someday since she was born in a different country and then it was corrected pretty quickly. Um, Uh But yes, that that is right. That's one limitation and it is a big one. Mm -hmm.
3: And just to add to Katie's comments about permanent residency, uh, yes, you can lose it and you can also abandon it. There are some conditions that you have to maintain while on your permanent residency status, that means, you have to maintain your residency in this country for more than half of the year, which is more than 180 days out of the whole 365 days remaining in this country, if not in totality, but in the total number should be there. So you if you are not maintaining that, you could also lose it by abandoning it. So next time, if you are not careful, you, you left the country for more than a year, you're coming at the port of entry, the CVP officer can deny you entry and say, sorry, you abandon your green card. And typically the green card, the name, how it was coined was the card used to be green. (laughs) (laughs) And since then it has changed several colors. It has gotten some pink, some blue, some golden. And now I think they have turned it back into some greenish shade again. (laughs)
1: Let Let me go back to something we were talking about earlier. This was kicking undocumented people out of the country. We hear about this from time to time, even though I've heard this discussed many times about punishing the people who hire these folks. I hear almost nothing about going after the folks who invite them in and who hire them and then look at them as just replaceable parts if they are discovered and kicked out. Is our immigration law really fair when we do something so strong with with the workers who are invited here, but nothing with those who, I I don't know, abuse them or whatever we wanna say? Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Now, I don't know, Katie, you may have a different understanding on this, but at least I have represented employers who have faced serious consequences for employing illegal workers or unauthorized workers, so as to say. And those the consequences are severe, not only in terms of monetary consequences or penalties. They could pay up to $10,000 per illegal worker they had, and even up to some jail sentence So I do not know why the media coverage has not been that much as it has been because maybe the numbers are always more on the sides of these immigrants. So if a factory is employing 200 illegal workers, the number 200 sounds really big compared to one employer. And that could be the reason. But we have represented employers where we have done audits to make sure that all their employees are legal to work in the country. We have done what we call the worksite enforcement compliances to make sure that whoever is working is authorized to work. There are requirements of employers, especially in white-collar industries, to maintain public folders on immigrants or non-immigrants that they have hired on H-1B visas, L visas, to keep a public folder where the public folder is accessible to anybody from the public, or whenever the USCIS officers can just come randomly do a check and pick up the public folder and go through it and find out who is working and who is not, and if they are authorized to work or not. There are compliance violations, especially on I-9s, I-9 verifications, and everybody who is in this country has to file an I-9 if they are required, is wanting to work. So sometimes we see that people who are illegally here, they would file an I-9 and may be represented as they are U.S. citizen or permanent resident or have some documentation that is not accurate to represent their status. But to be an employee, you will have to file an I-9. So there are checks and balances in place. Considering the enforcement force we have, we can only focus on so many things. So... Sometime our effort is or focuses from the enforcement part is on more on people who have entered the country legally and to get them back into the country uh, rather than on the people who are employing them. Uh, and Katie, you may have a different view on this since you have seen a lot of... People through the immigration courts and the deportation proceedings, going through all these as well.
4: So, what Vivek has been talking about is employer sanctions, is what they're called. And Congress, you know, has passed pretty strict laws placing sanctions on employers who knowingly hire non citizens who are not authorized to work. And Vivek's also right that that's part of our broader immigration enforcement system. And so, different administration, different presidential administrations will put a different focus on their enforcement efforts. And so we've seen over the years, you know, changes in the focus of where the enforcement is. And certainly more recently and under the Trump administration, that enforcement was focused largely on apprehending any removable non-citizen for any, you know, for any reason, even if they wouldn't have been a high priority, right? Even some of those smaller cases. Sometimes we've referred to it as the low-hanging fruit, right? But there have been times where employer sanctions have really been high up on the list of priorities when it comes to immigration enforcement. So that does ebb and flow. That is not an area I practice, so I'm glad Vivik's here to talk about what that looks like from the employer side. I think the real problem, right? Again, I, I can't talk necessarily to the nitty-gritty of employer sanctions and, and whether employers are knowingly doing it or not, but I think the real problem is our system as it's set up is just not designed for employers to be able to get in to interview, hire and get visas and have people to work in their jobs as quickly as they need and in the numbers they need. Right. Our system is just not set up for that. We have some really arbitrary caps that have been placed on most. Um, Vivek could tell me if it's not, or even all of our employment-based temporary worker programs. And so even employers who really want to follow the immigration law to a T, sometimes it's just really difficult to do that. And it might mean they're making a choice between absolutely following the letter of the law and not being able to run their business, right? Whether it's crops rotting in the field, whether it's, you know, technology that's not being able to get pushed out because they don't have the workers. So I, I don't know that I can speak to, you know, whether or not that's where the government's going wrong. What I can say is the whole system just needs to be overhauled so that it better accommodates both those workers who are looking for jobs and ready to come in and do the work that U.S. workers are not willing and able to do, and so that it accommodates employers. I think the system needs to change.
3: I I completely agree. And just to add a comment to uh, what Katie said and to concurring with her, two areas of employment law, immigration law, where one is white-collar, one is blue-collar, which is the white-collar is the H-1B system, where the total number of visas that the U.S. government allows is 65,000 plus 20,000 for U.S. graduated master's students, so total of 85,000 uh, visas every year. Against that 85,000 visas consistently for the last eight years, the application numbers that we have received has been over 250,000. So they have instituted a lottery system in that also. That means the need is that big in the IT sector that they need more than 300,000 people every year, but they are only getting 85,000 people. And so if you are an employer who is requiring 10 people to work at your place, but you may only get three. And that shows that we are not producing enough either engineers or IT workers that are universities. Now, if we move on to the H-2B visas or H-2A visas, which are the agricultural or temporary employment visas, where they are needed for uh, temporary jobs such as roofing, construction industry, landscaping, because, because these are not year-round jobs. These are only done during a season. And those numbers are capped at 60 6,000, again, 632 and 32, yes. So 64,000. And just recently, they added about 22,000 visas more to that, but that doesn't even cut close to what the need is. Those 64,000 visas are divided in two parts, one for the summer, one for the winter, starting in April and October. So basically, you only get 32,000 visas. Now imagine the span of United States, and you are getting only 32,000 visas to fill in the jobs for roofing, for construction, for landscaping, for agriculture. You just cannot. What is the alternative? These people who are coming across the borders, they will be picking your fruits. And there is no other option because we don't have enough workers. So yes, who to blame? I don't know. But I think there needs to be an overhaul of the system. I completely agree with Katie on that.
2: So right now, if I'm a foreign national, and I'm willing and ready to work, and I have the right skill set and I complete my visa form and I qualify, it still all depends on the luck of if my number comes up among those who have applied against me.
3: That is correct. And before that, the employer has to prove through a market test through the Department of Labor that he could not find an able, eligible, and willing US worker for that position. So once he proves that, the department of labor then will certify okay fine since you have done all your efforts by marketing your positions you have to do six or ten efforts by publishing in a newspaper on a radio station uh, in a different job board sites so with the state workforce agency with tv you have to do all those things and after that you prove that that against those i did not receive the resumes of qualified people. I need, and then please allow me to hire those foreign workers. Now, the Department of Labor will certify you, Okay, now you can do that. But now you are restricted with the visa numbers. So you want 10, but you may get one or two workers out of that.
2: And if you're the worker and win the lottery one year, do you get to keep your visa or do you have to go through the lottery all over again for your next year?
3: So for temporary workers in H-1 category, you would you will not have to go again what is called your CAP subject. So that means you will be eligible to work for up to six years, three years initially, and then again, you can apply for an extension for three more years. So you can remain in the country and work for up to six years. On the
1: H2B side, you can come and go up to three years. Well. We've covered a lot of ground here on this program today, and one of the things we haven't really gotten into, but we've touched on it, and it's a good place to leave it, is immigration reform. Because obviously, from what we've been discussing in the last few minutes, that's one of the things that people need to be talking about and have been talking about for some time without much resolution. We want to thank you for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal Too?, a special production of the Missouri Bar. Our thanks to Katie Meyer and Vivek Malik for helping us understand this important but very complicated issue. And we hope that it's a little bit more clear to you just how complicated things really are in this entire field. Before we go, this program series is going to be focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it.
2: Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more.
5: In
1: the past decade, the Supreme
5: Court has addressed important constitutional questions springing from the issue of immigration. In one case, the contention was that the federal government did not go far enough in addressing immigration. In the second case, the contention was that the federal government had gone too far. In both the Supreme Court of the United States strengthened the supremacy of the federal government on the issue of immigration. In the first case, The legislature of the state of Arizona believed that the Obama administration was not doing enough to address the issue of illegal immigration. The legislature enacted, and Governor Jan Brewer signed into law, Senate Bill 1070, which made it a crime for an individual to fail to carry an alien registration document and also made it a crime for an unauthorized alien to apply for or perform work in Arizona. The law also gave Arizona law enforcement the power to make a warrantless arrest where there was probable cause to believe that a person was undocumented. The law was challenged as an unconstitutional infringement by the state upon an area controlled by the federal government. This case was reminiscent of a 1941 decision, Heinz v. Davidovitz. In that case, Pennsylvania enacted a law requiring non-U.S. citizens, often referred to legally as aliens, to register with the state and to carry a state-issued registration card. In declaring the Pennsylvania law unconstitutional, the Supreme Court emphasized that the registration and regulation of non-citizens or aliens, quote, is in a field which affects international relations, the one aspect of our government that from the first has been most generally considered imperatively to demand broad national authority. In the 2012 case of Arizona versus United States, the Supreme Court continued this deference to the federal government. Writing for the court, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote, quote, the government of the United States has broad, undoubted power over the subject of immigration and the status of aliens. The authority rests in part on the national government's constitutional power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization and its inherent power as a sovereign to control and conduct relations with foreign nations. With this language offering a prelude, it can hardly be seen as surprising that the court would strike down so much of Arizona's law. The court ruled that Arizona's requirement that aliens carry documentation adds a state law penalty for conduct prescribed by federal law. Kennedy explained that, quote, where Congress occupies an entire field as it has in the field of alien registration, Even complementary state regulation is impermissible. Field preemption reflects a congressional decision to foreclose any state regulation in the area, even if it is parallel to federal standards. The court also rejected the part of the Arizona law that conflicted with the approach adopted by Congress, making it a crime for illegal aliens to seek work. Justice Kennedy looked to the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 enacted by Congress and concluded, quote, Congress made a deliberate choice not to impose criminal penalties on aliens who seek unauthorized employment. In the end, the law's framework reflects a considered judgment that making criminals out of aliens engaged in unauthorized work would be inconsistent with federal policy and objectives. Kennedy concluded, the ordinary principles of preemption include the well-settled proposition that a state law is preempted where it stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of the full purposes and objectives of Congress. The Arizona law would interfere with the careful balance struck by Congress with respect to the unauthorized employment of aliens. Finally, The court rejected the portion of the Arizona law that empowered state officials to make warrantless arrests of those believed to be in the country illegally. As Kennedy noted, the Arizona law, quote, attempts to provide state officers even greater authority than Congress has given to trained federal immigration officers. Kennedy went on to write, quote, by authorizing state officers to decide Whether an alien should be detained for being removable, the law violates the principle that the removal process is entrusted to the discretion of the federal government. A decision on removability requires a determination whether it is appropriate to allow a foreign national to continue living in the United States. Decisions of this nature touch on foreign relations and must be made with one voice. Kennedy concluded with the observation that constitutional principles are not to be reshaped by the intensity of the day, writing, Arizona may have understandable frustrations with the problems caused by illegal immigration, but the state may not pursue policies that undermine federal law. Justice Antonin Scalia disagreed with the court and wrote in dissent, asking, Are the sovereign states at the mercy of the federal executive's refusal to enforce the nation's immigration laws? Scalia went on to note that Arizona bears the brunt of the country's illegal immigration problems. Its citizens feel themselves under siege by large numbers of illegal immigrants who invade their property, strain their social services, and even place their lives in jeopardy. Scalia concluded by writing, Arizona has moved to protect its sovereignty, not in contradiction of federal law, but in complete compliance with it. The laws under challenge here do not extend or revise federal immigration restrictions, but merely enforce those restrictions more effectively. If securing its territory in this fashion is not within the power of Arizona, we should cease referring to it as a sovereign state. While Arizona versus United States resulted from a belief that President Obama did not do enough on the issue of immigration, the next case would spring from the belief that President Trump was overly active in dealing with immigration. In September, 2017, President Donald Trump issued proclamation number 9645 seeking to improve vetting procedures for foreign nationals traveling to the United States by identifying ongoing deficiencies in the information needed to assess whether nationals of a particular country present a security threat. The proclamation placed entry restrictions on the nationals of eight foreign states whose systems for managing and sharing information about their nationals, the president deemed inadequate. The eight countries were Chad, Iran, Iraq, Libya, North Korea, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen. They were identified by the Department of Homeland Security in consultation with the State Department and intelligence agencies. The president's proclamation was challenged by a number of parties, including the state of Hawaii, which operates the University of Hawaii system, and recruits students and faculty from the designated countries. The plaintiffs also included U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents who have relatives from Iran, Syria, and Yemen applying for immigrant or non-immigrant visas. The plaintiffs challenged the proclamation on several grounds, including that it violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which provides that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Their argument was that the Supreme Court's interpretation of the First Amendment has consistently recognized that the clearest command of the Establishment Clause is that one religious denomination cannot be officially preferred over another. The plaintiffs believed that the proclamation violated this prohibition by singling out Muslims for disfavored treatment, that it was motivated not by concerns pertaining to national security, but by animus toward Islam. The plaintiffs alleged that the primary purpose of the proclamation was religious animus and that the president's stated concerns about vetting protocols and national security were only pretexts for discriminating against Muslims. Why did they make such a claim? They looked to the words of Donald Trump. While a candidate on the campaign trail, Trump published a document entitled Statement on Preventing Muslim Immigration that called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. Then candidate Trump also stated that Islam hates us and asserted that the United States was having problems with Muslims coming into the country. Those who challenged President Trump's proclamation recognized the federal government's primacy in the field of immigration and the president's considerable power in this area. However, they argued, even where the president's power was great, that did not allow actions that violated the constitution especially a provision as important as the Establishment Clause. Both the federal district court and the Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. In the 2008 case of Trump versus Hawaii, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in favor of the constitutionality of President Trump's proclamation. In his opinion for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts drew a distinction between Donald Trump and the institution of the presidency, writing, quote, Plaintiffs argue that this president's words strike at fundamental standards of respect and tolerance in violation of our constitutional tradition. But the issue before us is not whether to denounce the statements. It is instead the significance of those statements in reviewing a presidential directive neutral on its face addressing a matter within the core of executive responsibility. In doing so, we must consider not only the statements of a particular president, but also the authority of the presidency itself. Chief Justice Roberts emphasized that this case involved an area where presidential authority was significant and judicial authority limited writing. Quote, any rule of constitutional law that would inhibit the flexibility of the president to respond to changing world conditions should be adopted only with the greatest caution. And our inquiry into matters of entry and national security is highly constrained. Roberts went on to note, quote, for more than a century, this court has recognized that the admission and exclusion of foreign nationals is a fundamental sovereign attribute exercised by the government's political departments, largely immune from judicial control. Roberts and the majority, chose to focus on the proclamation itself rather than the rhetoric that preceded it, writing, quote, the proclamation is expressly premised on legitimate purposes, preventing entry of nationals who cannot be adequately vetted and inducing other nations to improve their practices. The text says nothing about religion. More fundamentally, plaintiffs and the dissent challenged the entry suspension based on their perception of its effectiveness and wisdom. They suggest that the policy is overbroad and does little to serve national security interests, but we cannot substitute our own assessment for the executive's predictive judgments on such matters. Ultimately, the court sided with the presidency with Chief Justice Roberts writing, quote, Under these circumstances, the government has set forth a sufficient national security justification to survive rational basis review. We express no view on the soundness of the policy. We simply hold today that plaintiffs have not demonstrated a likelihood of success on the merits of their constitutional claim. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, dissented. Justice Sotomayor wrote the United States of America is a nation built upon the promise of religious liberty. Our founders honored that core promise by embedding the principle of religious neutrality in the First Amendment. The court's decision today fails to safeguard that fundamental principle. It leaves undisturbed a policy first advertised openly and unequivocally as a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States, because the policy now masquerades behind a facade of national security concerns. But this repackaging does little to cleanse presidential proclamation number nine six four five of the appearance of discrimination that the president's words have created. Based on the evidence in the record, a reasonable observer would conclude that the proclamation was motivated by anti-Muslim animus. That alone suffices to show that plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits of their Establishment Clause claim. The majority holds otherwise by ignoring the facts, misconstruing our legal precedent, and turning a blind eye to the pain and suffering the proclamation inflicts upon countless families and individuals, many of whom are United States citizens. Because that troubling result runs contrary to the Constitution and our precedent, I dissent. These two cases demonstrate that constitutional questions concerning immigration give rise to intense political conflicts. In both Arizona versus United States and Trump versus Hawaii, the United States Supreme Court chose to focus on constitutional doctrine rather than political considerations. Immigration questions will continue to come before the Supreme Court. Will the court continue to follow the path it has developed on these issues? That remains to be seen. Even though these were recent cases, a number of the justices who were involved in their resolution are no longer on the court. We will have to wait and watch as new justices are appointed and the Supreme Court continues its ongoing conversation on how the Constitution will apply to the issues that come before it.
2: There are some resources you might want to check, whether you're involved in criminal proceedings or whether you have other legal questions, especially about the laws in Missouri or at the federal level. You can find those at MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org. You can find an array of information to help you better understand the law. That's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your
4: finances.
0: Nothing further
1: You've been listening to Is It Legal Too, a regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty,
2: And I'm Farah Fight.
1: Thanks for being with us.
2: Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal Too podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.